as well as my hometown evangelical church family who really would help us and show us what a true family is and what Christ's love looks like. There were many times we would just wonder if we were going to have food on the table and in our mailbox at church there would be $50 for a meal or we'd find $7 on the ground to get milk. It, it happened so many times I can't even remember. I started working at the age 12 where I biked to my first babysitting job. From there, I did other jobs like rock picking fields to save money for essentials in my first car. I continued working through high school to save up enough money for college where I applied at 16 and moved out at 17 to start college. That's also the same time that I met Adam at my hometown church. At 17, I moved to St. Cloud and started college. I feel so grateful that God gave me a clear vision of what he wanted me to do with my life. I was doing 65 hours a week with school and work, and then I ended up developing mono. This is the sickest I've ever been, and I remember being so weak that I couldn't even walk, and Adam had to carry me into the doctor. Pushing through, four or five months later, I graduated. This is also the time that Adam and I were engaged, and just looking forward to planning a wedding and getting married to my best friend we had dated at age 16, so we were 20 by this time, so we were really young, but we just um, knew that God had us to be married, and this is just the time for the next year. We just started to plan our wedding, and I was excited for that, and didn't really know what God had in store for us after that, but Adam's going to share a little bit, and I'll come back. We're kind of giving you a backstory here. Um, when I look back on my childhood, I see that God had a calling on my life, but I didn't know it at the time. I grew up in a Catholic church with more of a, realist, or a ritualistic idea of who God is. And then at age 15, from some friends from school that I had invited me to uh, an E-Free church, which was also Joni's church. This is, the first, this is when I first um, started to realize that these people had something that I didn't have. They were excited about church and knew that the Bible, what the Bible said, as well as they had a peace about them. I went to um, a camp with them, Camp Shamanah, and it was called Fall Fling, and I felt the Holy Spirit convicting me after the speaker shared the gospel message, and I was 16 at the time, and there I gave my life to Christ. And Joni and I, like she mentioned, had already been uh, begun dating a few months earlier than that. Um, then I was near graduation of high school, um, applied for college in St. Cloud in the machine tool technology program, and we, I moved a few months later at age 18, but I really wasn't living uh, a God-honoring life during college. There's really no difference between me and the world except I dusted off my Bible once in a while to read it. Um, we got married at age 20, right out of college. The first year of our marriage was not a honeymoon. We both lost our jobs. Um, that we graduated college going after and we'd worked with them for a year and we lost our jobs. Then we both got in accidents and told our, totaled their two cars. Our house payment was increased due to assessments so there was a lot of trials there. Um, and about this time I also confessed to Joni that I was in sin with pornography. And from this time um, our lives spun out of control. All I can say, it was, it was pretty much pure darkness. 
from year one to year five, I moved out of the house twice in separation. The first time was for a year, and that nearly ended with signed divorce papers. My heart was hardened. And during this time, I had friends who were leading me astray, pastors who thought it would be better to tickle the ear than to speak the truth. Actually, I can only think of one or two people who encouraged us to fight through the hardship. Everyone else advised us that it was a lost cause, and we were not meant for each other. And we also didn't understand what a covenant between us and God really meant. I was blinded and deceived, um, looking only to the things that I thought would make me happy. I'm here to tell you that the grass isn't greener on the other side. One night, Joni had me over while we were separated, and uh, I thought I was going over there to discuss how we are going to divide things up. I was pretty much ready to say, you can have the house and everything else. I just want the clothes on my back. I just want it over with. I don't really care. And um, she invited me over, and we talked a little bit, and she told me um, that God told her that it was easier to work through the marriage than it would be to get divorced. And I was just so hardened. I just rolled my eyes in disgust and thought, yeah, whatever. Let's just figure this out and get on with life. And uh, later that night as we talked more, I really saw Joni's heart come out and the things she was telling me. And I was also convicted that we needed to stay married. Yeah, so we moved on. We began to build our marriage again. And um, it was it was really trying time during that separation. I lived with two different uh, guy friends from church. I had really no one to hold me accountable. Pastors and counselors were just, all I can say is they were worldly. They were just saying, do what the world does. Don't be different. You know, just if you want to get divorced, do it. Your life will be easier. And uh, that was all just, a chaotic time in our marriage and it's actually hard to talk about um, to open this this box back up but it, I know it needs to be done here so yeah we moved on and began to rebuild our marriage a few years later we went up to Breezy Point to visit my parents and see their new camper in White Birch Campground what a beautiful place we thought on the way home the Holy Spirit was stirring in Joni's heart to move there and on the ride home, she told me this. I think we're supposed to move up here. And I, I love to hunt and fish. And I thought, oh, this would be great. And we were living in St. Cloud at the time. But we both had uh, good jobs at this time. And we had no reason to really move. And we thought, yeah, this is, okay, whatever. We'll just dismiss this as, you know, our fancy idea of uh, just doing something out of our own will. And we just talked and whatnot. And by the time we got home, I think an hour after we we got back home, we looked at each other and said, we're moving, aren't we? And the Lord really spoke at that clear to our hearts. And uh, two months later, on July 21st, our fifth year anniversary, we uh, had an offer in on a building. This was, uh, yeah, two months after we first visited. And uh, the offer was accepted on July 21st, uh, where we would set up our new businesses. This is also the same day that we renewed our vows at Breezy Point Resort. So it was a quite amazing day of new beginnings. We moved a few months later and began commuting to our jobs in St. Cloud, as well as renovate the church we purchased. It was an old church building, over 100 years old. Um, we found a renter for our home in St. Cloud uh, while it was on the market to be sold. 
And prior to this, we'd actually tried to sell that house for about seven years on and off and had no buyers, only one offer, and they retracted the offer. So it was very trying, to say the least. So we basically came here with uh, a house that wouldn't sell, um, commuting from here to St. Cloud every day, not knowing what we were going to do or how we were going to make it. We just knew that this is what God had for us, and we were trying to be obedient, but that didn't mean we didn't second-guess it and weren't freaked out beyond imagination. Um, <laughs> and okay, so we ended up moving up here and we were unloading our things into this little rental that we found that was only about a mile from, from where our business is now. And we're unloading our things and uh, we were having a conversation and renovating the salon and all these things at the same time. And um, a conversation started out where Joni looked at me and she asked if I had been looking at pornography. And I denied it, of course, and said, no, you know, it's, it's, I don't know what you're talking about. And she kept prompting me because she knew the Lord put it on her heart that she knew my heart. And I confessed, yes, I was again. And uh, we got in a huge argument. And I ended up leaving that night and leaving with, uh, you know, just some clothes and whatnot. I moved back in with my parents, left Joni up here all by herself in the middle of a renovation. And uh, I can only think what a sorry excuse for a husband now that I think back on it. Um, so she was left to do the project by herself, to hire everyone that needed to be hired to um, get everything going by herself. And uh, that was just when we were 25, so fifth year of marriage. And... Okay, so kind of going back, during our marriage, we sought to help pastors and counselors. One counselor and two pastors told us that divorce was the only option. After all, um, they saw that Joni and I couldn't even be in the same room with each other because we'd argue and get angry to the point of almost hate with each other. And for me, I was I kept pointing out Joni's flaws and... and seeing, you know, trying to put it back on her, like, well, if only you were like this or like that, I wouldn't have this problem. And uh, then I read in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So I was I was doing that, absolutely, looking at Joni's speck in her eye, and I couldn't even see clearly because of the plank in my own eye. And I actually saw my sin, but my heart was so hard that I refused to allow God to change me. I'd pray for deliverance, and I'd, I read tons of books by Christian authors, and none of them changed my heart. I was looking for a formula or, a, you know, a seven-step process, do X, Y, and Z, and you'll be free kind of a thing. Um, and God waited for me to hit rock bottom and truly cry out to him with nothing left before my heart was to be changed. I used to take for granted uh, the characters of God, his mercy, grace, judgment, patience, kindness, justice, love, sacrifice, and law. I'm sorry if this is kind of bouncing around. We wrote this for about a month on and off, and so it might not all tie together exactly. 
But my heart was hardened and needed to be softened again. During this time, God revealed to me my foolishness and lack of respect for myself and Joni. And a godly mentor told me that I needed to get out of my parents' house and move back in with my wife. And so Joni said, okay, well, let's work on it once again. And I, commute, I continued to commute to uh, St. Cloud to my job, as Joni did too. And uh, Joni worked three days a week and commuted two days a week, and we put in about 65 hours a week. So it was a stressful time. We were moving to a new area, working long hours, and we didn't really have any support system. And Joni did this for six months, and I did it for a year. And the strain of the distance was too hard, and I decided, actually we decided, uh, that I would quit my jewelry job there. And in doing so, I was taking a leap of faith that for the time together that we needed and that God would provide a job. Well, I applied at every job I could think of in the 45-mile radius. I had a wide range of skills that I could use, and I could not get a job. And I finally, one guy hired me to paint his garage, and then I got a part-time job at Creative Steel in Breezy Point and started uh, my own jewelry business with just a little bit of equipment. And I needed a name. And the rental house we were living in used to be bed and breakfast, and the owners had to close it down due to a, a tragic death of their daughter. And the name of it was The Stone House, so we asked permission to use that name, and they said, yes, you can. And so my, my business is called Stone House Jewelers. And two 25-year-olds running businesses in a new town with little income, no support system for family or church, it was difficult. Now for the, th now for the third and, and final separation. You're probably thinking, wow, three separations. It's true. I was into pornography again. The Lord showed Joni each time that I was in a dream. And she would give her dreams of uh, that I was doing that, and she would ask me, and I would deny every time. And uh, then finally she'd get it out of me that, yeah, I was doing that. And by this time, you can imagine Joni was pretty fed up with me, to say the least. She sat down with me and had a conversation and said, Adam, I love you, but we can't keep on going this way. This is not a marriage God intends for us. I want children. I want a life with you of faithfulness. I'd fall, I've allowed, I allowed myself to hit the bottom. In hindsight, it was the only way for me to truly die to myself and to sin and be alive in Christ. I always compared myself to man um, to justify my sin. I would say, I'm not as bad as the other guy. Or my sin is sporadic. It's not all the time I'm doing this. And therefore, it's less of a sin. I'm a good person. Therefore, I can still go to heaven. But reading in Romans, Romans 3, read a couple verses to you. 3, 10 through 12, uh, about being a good person here to go to heaven. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then 18 through 20, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, 
we become conscious of sin. And then verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And um, I was I was just comparing myself to everyone else around me and not and not to the word of God, which is was a major error in in my beliefs. I know that being a good person has nothing to do with whether or not we are heaven bound. According to worldly standards, I suppose I was living a pretty clean life. After all, I didn't drink in excess, do drugs, or curse. What a poor standard, though, I was comparing myself to. Christ is the only person of which to compare. And I fall miserably short of his perfection. And I wanted to continue denying that I had an issue. Joni urged me to seek the help of a mentor that I met a few years back. I said no because my hair was hard. But Joni said we'll never have a godly marriage. We'll never have a family if our relationship is like this. We can't keep doing this. This is continued unfaithfulness. And I tried to justify it. Well, it's not unfaithfulness if it's not with another woman. But I see that it is. It is still adultery. And she asked, what do you want, Adam? And I was angry and upset with that God didn't just take it from me. I continued to pray that he would remove this from me. And he, uh, he didn't do that. But that's not what God had in store. I was given a choice, either seek help or move out. And very flippantly, uh, I just I said, okay, then I'll move out. And I hit an all-time low. I slept on the floor of the basement of our business for four months. It was embarrassing and humiliating, actually. That's how much sin had a hold of me. The studies show that pornography is more addictive than cocaine to the body and brain because of the chemicals it releases. And this destructive behavior became a serious problem. After four months of this, Joni asked me again if I was ready to talk to someone who could help. And I, against my will, decided uh, to go see a mentor, a man of faith for my issues. So during that week, I left. I left my cell phone at home and there was no TV to turn on at, at this man's house. It was about an hour and a half away. I was armed with my Bible and a bunch of Christian books. His name was Darren. Darren and I talked and prayed, as well as went through a study each evening after he was home from work. The rest of the time while he was working, I would just read and pray for a week straight. We did this. And the Lord started to convict me through Darren's truthful and honest words. He was the first person to actually hold me accountable to, be, to what being a real man meant to what being a godly man went, meant. And he taught me what that is, and he held me accountable for the things that I was to be held accountable for as a man and as a leader. And it was amazing to have someone like that in my life, to speak truth to me as I was oblivious to my own pride. He pointed that out too. He kept saying, you, you, you portray that you're down in the dumps and that you're sorrowful, but I think you have pride that it's a major issue in your life. I had never heard anyone state that before. As the week progressed, my heart started to soften. The Holy Spirit made me aware of many sins, past and present, that I needed to repent of. I remember writing on a, a piece of notebook paper over a hundred sins that I hadn't confessed or that I could think of that I hadn't repented of. And then Joni saved two messages that I left her. One before I left for that week's stay, and one that was during the week while I was there. And wow, what a different voice I had. In the first message, I could hear the pride 
my anger, resentment, harshness. And this is all before I left. And God was working in my heart while I was there. And the message from during the week while I was there, we could hear sorrowfulness, tenderness, and a broken spirit. It was an absolute miracle. I needed to be brought to my knees before I would cry out to God. James 1, 2-4 <clears throat> Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. This is hard to talk about this time, but um, mostly what I felt, I felt during these times of separation, like I had left off on you, <clears throat> you're planning this amazing wedding, and you just hear about the honeymoon that you'll have, and you know, we were both Christians, and so we're looking forward to a life together, and that, you know, isn't what happened, and during these times of separation, pretty much the only word that I felt was alone. Um, I just felt abandoned in a distant land. Away from my family, my friends, without Adam. I just felt like an island with the water just flowing by me. These are some of my darkest years. It gets better. <laughs> a close friend of mine in St. Cloud, as we had already moved up here, and at this point we hadn't met any friends or we didn't know about Providence, and my family was two hours away. And I could call them, but there really wasn't anyone there, not to mention the humiliation you feel that you're saying for the third time that you're separated and everyone's kind of like, okay, I've heard this story, you know. So by that point, you really just feel so alone in your pain that you just don't reach out to anyone because you just feel like you don't want to burden someone again. But one particularly close friend of mine would let me call her. And I called her probably two or three times a week. And she'd let me cry. And she'd pray for me. She'd say, I'd talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> to me, that's what a true friend is. I'm gonna read a poem that I wrote on year four of our marriage. And at that point, that was right before we were to renew our vows. And that, um, as we thought, was going to be the beginning of our new life and our new marriage together. And um, two more separations did come after that, and that wasn't the end of it. But because this poem was written in year four, and our marriage wasn't truly redeemed until year seven, I think that God gave me this 
as prophecy over our marriage. Your smile shined with the purest of light. It lit up the darkest black of night. I grew to it quickly and gaveth my heart. Entangled in you, we began our faithful start. Friendship grew to love, or what it may have been. We look back and wonder what it felt like then. Always together, we devoured each other's love and sharing our love for the Father above. Soon we joined as one, and followed was the year. This seemed to prove us right in all our greatest fears. The light grew dark, and the candle burned low. The beauty of our union was forgotten and unknown. The earth began to rumble, and the sky poured out rain. We looked at each other with just sorrow and pain. Ripped, stripped, beaten, and worn, all of our love and joy shattered, and our hearts completely torn. What had destroyed our young, innocent love? Was he still watching us up from above? The serpent's tongue was poison. He lurked at every turn. He uglied our love and let the fire to watch us burn. The giver and the taker, the beginning and the end. Our all-powerful Savior wanted to heal and to mend, to use us for his purpose and hold us in his care, to take our broken oneness, make it beautiful and rare. I began to see you as a tender, loving dear. You saw me as a beauty, inspiring and pure. Your dim smile brightened and stirred my soul inside. We began to grow together instead of to divide. We fell down on our knees to pray that forever and always together we stay. To conquer and diminish the heated fire, to recover and set fire to love's burning desire. To cry and sing, laugh and dance, to wait to fall into an awaited deep romance, to escape into your glowing eyes, to love without compromise. From this day forward, I pledge my love to my dear Adam, a gift from God above. Um, I got back from my week away and I promised, I made Joni a promise that I would never move out again. And I've kept that promise to this day through the grace of God. Um, but I, I was super convicted. And um, this is when things started to turn around. So everyone can breathe. It gets better here. It's me especially. Um, after eight years of marriage, I finally had freedom. The Lord truly freed me from my sin. He'd already paid the price on the cross, and I was thinking that I had to do something to redeem myself, which wasn't the case. And less than two months after I got back, we conceived our daughter. And prior to this, I mean, we could have gotten pregnant through the years of being married, but the Lord had another plan for us. And I think it's because rearing children during the turmoil of our relationship would have been such a harmful environment uh, for a child to be raised in. And God's providential plan was always at work without us recognizing it. And now um, we've been blessed with two children, and um, these trials really deepened our faith. 
and God was refining us through the fire. He had a plan, and we were unaware of it. All we saw was pain and darkness, and could hardly see any light in that time. And our our little daughter that was born, we named Eden Grace, which means delight. And grace, because God's grace was on our lives through those years and still is today. And it was just a symbolization of that our marriage is truly healed and saved and made new. We weren't expecting to, to be pregnant, and it was just such confirmation that I can't even explain that God had healed our marriage. He had not allowed us to, to have children before this, and suddenly we're having a baby. It, it was just absolutely incredible. And then uh, we also found Provident Church, Providence Church here um, that same year. Um, Um, as women, you just have a desire for children. And for me, I just had so many doubts that, you know, that this was real freedom for Adam and that, you know, we could move on and begin our life. We had done that so many times previously, seven years worth of toiling through this that I just cannot even explain to you what my heart felt like when we became pregnant. And this is leading up to all of these separations. And Adam had just gotten back and like he said, he sat down with me and said, I will never leave you again. And two months is not a lot of time to pass you know, before becoming pregnant. So it was the day we found out we were pregnant. I didn't even ask God for a sign that our marriage was saved or anything, but that kind of symbolization to look at Eden every day. And I know what God has done in our life. And she truly is just our delight. <laughs> um, but I did want to share something about um, the birth of Eden. Uh, God still had some things to do in my heart. I was pretty hardened um, to allowing people in or even God in from the things that we went through in our marriage and um, I remember I would come to church and sing worship songs and I would desire so much to feel God and I would just feel nothing and I would just sing out of just to sing with no connection and I would pray Lord I want to feel you I want my heart to be softened I want to feel like myself again and I just could not get there and I thought I deserved a reason to be mad or to stay hard because things happened to me. And um, I'll just share what happened to my heart. Only once in my life have I ever endured such physical pain as the day that Eden was born. Um, some things happen and um, 
the birth that just made it to be um, just physically very intense and something that um, was was unbearable. But it changed my, my life and my relationship with the Lord. As I was laying there, um, I went through about 18 hours of um, something had happened in my legs through my birth that um, if any of you have ever endured nerve pain, it's a different kind of pain. It's extremely hard to deal with. And the nerves in my legs, um, something was going on to where I was having pain along with my contractions and we couldn't do anything about it. But it was so painful that I consider myself to be um, someone who has a high pain tolerance. I don't like to complain even if things are tough. Um, but that night, I had to feel such extreme physical pain so that I could get a tiny, tiny glimpse of the pain that Christ did for me on the cross. And I can't even fathom what he went through. That night, as I was laying there, trying to figure out if we were having a home birth and trying to figure out if we should go to the hospital because uh, my labor was not progressing because the pain was just too unbearable. Things just weren't moving along. And um, we contemplated leaving. And I just asked Adam to pray for me. And as I laid there with my eyes closed, I said, Christ, the pain that you endured for me on the cross is nothing compared to this one small bit of pain that I have to endure. And through that, God completely changed my heart. I rarely can sing worship songs now without crying because we're singing to God. That little bit that I get to know of God here on earth will never compared to his heavenly glory. And the day that we get to meet him, my grandma um, lived next door to me, and she was a feisty lady, and she was just an amazing woman, and she would give you the shirt off her back. You called her in the middle of the night, and even if you were someone who was her enemy, and you had a car broke down in the middle of the night, she'd come pick you up. That's the type of woman she was. And she always talked about heaven. And she always talked about meeting her God and how amazing that will be. And I just, I can't even, it's hard to even, as I was preparing for this, it's hard to even talk about God because he, he's God. And how can we even speak of him? It's so humbling to be able to even be up here speaking about him. But Lincoln um, Emery, we call him our industrious leader, he came less than two years later. Um, our second little blessing. And I just felt like after this that I owed my entire life to commit to this God who gave his life for me.
O Lord my God, am I in awesome wonder. Consider all the works thy hand hath made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, the power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. But when I think that God is son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross our burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away our sin. Then Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home. What joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. How could we not give our all to a God like this? As I grow in my relationship and grow in years, the Lord has continued to bring me to Proverbs 31. When we renewed our vows, I used um, phrases from that um, to Adam. And I just think it is such an example of a godly woman and something to strive for. And I'm just going to read that for you. The wife of noble character, a wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and she lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it's still dark and provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong with her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. And in her hand, she holds a distaff and grasps a spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the reward she has earned, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Talking about all this comes with a lot of emotions, Guilt and disbelief, actually. But what God has done, what we're saying today isn't even the half of what he's done to us and in our lives and our marriage. He restored my family, too. 
as there was a lot of strife with my family and our marriage and with Joni, and he's restored that. There's just so many things that that he's done in our life that I could have never imagined we would have went through those trials, and we did, and he saw us through them all. And we're first married. I would have never imagined all the pain and hardship we had to endure. I thought, we're going to get married. It's going to be great. We'll be together. Life will be happily ever after. And that wasn't so. I also never imagined that my little secret sin could be so destructive to Joni, friends, and family, and myself. It seemed impossible. It seems impossible that we're standing here today given our testimony of God's faithfulness. Actually, I have no idea what my life would look like today without Joni and her perseverance. But even more amazing is that the God of the universe who created everything, he cares about me, a sinful man with a wayward heart. I turned my back on him, but he never stopped loving me. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are real beyond the perceptions of this reality. I have witnessed the healing that only he could accomplish. He has used my life to prove that he can change even the hardest of hearts. And now we can stand here and declare victory over our marriage in the name of Jesus. And I guess to close, we, the trials aren't over in this life. We're still going through things today. And there's just a prayer from uh, a guy named Jordan Rubin. He's wrote several books, but this is his prayer, and I think it's a great prayer of blessings. And I'm just going to pray this in closing, and uh, then we'll be done. Today I pray that like Job, God would surround you with a hedge of protection. If you can bow your head with me, please. And that you would have greater blessings in the latter part of your life from this day forward. I pray like Abraham, that you would grow wealthy with cattle, gold, and silver. That like Isaac, you plant a field and reap a hundredfold harvest. That like Jacob, with wisdom and discernment, you would grow your flocks and herds. That like Joseph, the dream that God has given you would be salvation to many. That like Moses, the Lord would reveal himself to you and show you his glory. Like Bazalel, who helped build the tabernacle, that God would anoint you for the specific task that he has called you to accomplish. That like Joshua, God would fill you with the spirit of wisdom. That like the children of Israel, you'd live in a land you didn't buy, with barns and houses that you didn't build, drinking from springs and wells that you didn't know existed, and eating from vineyards that you didn't plant. That he'd bless the fruit of your trees, the grass of your fields, and the calves of your herds. That he'd bring the spring and autumn rain, and that there would be none sick among you, and none barren. That like David, God would give you a blueprint of what he would like you to build for him. That like Solomon, he would give you a wise and understanding heart. That like Uzziah, there would be good men caring for your cattle in the foothills, and that you'd have a love and understanding of the soil. That like Daniel, God would give you ten times the wisdom, favor, and discernment of all those who don't know him. And that like Peter, you'd cast your net on the right side of the boat and catch 153 fish in Jesus' name. Amen.
thank you once again, Andrew and Jody. And if I could just have a little bit more of your patience to reward you with a, uh, a dinner together after. So if anyone has lunch plans, go ahead and cancel and reschedule them here in a few moments so we'll have a pot blessing dinner together. And as sometimes these second Sundays of the month can be a little extended, what a great th what a great thing to give time for, just the testimony of God among us. Just to underscore some of the principles of what Adam and Joni experienced and to leave us in the refuge of the word and with just an even greater encouragement drawn from the pages of scripture for our, the rest of our lives, I'd like to lead you to again to Psalm 27. And dear Lord, I pray as we now open your word and read briefly some of the beauty therein contained, that you would write it indelibly on the pages of our heart, on the tables of our heart, that we might take it with us, recognizing it for the life-giving and life-keeping power that it is. The rock Jesus Christ has revealed himself. The incarnate word was here and walked among us, and we have his word with us in written form. Teach us to love that Lord and to value the treasure therein contained. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Psalm 27 gives us the symmetry of hope. We go through difficult times and circumstances in our lives, and as I was listening to Adam and Joni share, I wondered how many more of us in this room could relate at some level, in some degree, and with, with some of the circumstances that they went, went through, and I wonder how many of us can relate to them and some of those things even right now. Well, David certainly could relate to these circumstances and more. David's sins were many, and he was exemplary. He got the privilege, if you can call it that, of having his life being literally an open book written down for us to read so that we might know how God's grace is sufficient even when he has a high calling on our life and the disproportionate ability that's demonstrated in those who are supposed to be faithful to him. David also demonstrated where he ran when he felt like a failure, knew his own sin, and was faced on every side by enemies within and without. And Psalm 27 gives us one of these moments. It's a window, a behind-the-scenes look into the soul of a man called by God but knowing his own weaknesses. He says in Psalm 27, verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I titled this message, The Symmetry of Hope, because there's a shape to this particular psalm, as many psalms demonstrate to us in their literary form, the beauty of prayer and worship. The title reflects the shape of the psalms themselves, and the purpose of it as a poetry, a poetic form. The Psalms exist to emphasize, clarify, and boldly declare the things that are unchanging, immutable. In our Lord there is no darkness and shadow of turning, and neither in a psalm that reflects his character. And so the Psalms often have a beauty to them that is communicating to us the almost ineffable. That is a God who is so perfect, so glorious, so powerful, somehow can take the little, the nothing, the sin that we have to offer and turn it around for his glory in such a way as to make him glorious and to humble our hearts. The title reflects the shape of this psalm and the progression of the author's thought 
The literary form of this psalm stands opposed to the ungrounded, self-contained, abstract, absurd, new age, kind of follow your heart theology or chicken soup for the soul ideas or notions of hope and confidence that are so popular today. Now, I'm no judge of you know, blasphemy as or by order of degrees, but if you were to ask me, I might suspect one of the most blasphemous places you can go and look at signs of hope would be the Hallmark card aisle of any given drugstore or whatever. If you open up card after card and you see references of little quips and sayings and things to make you feel better, and they're offering you peace, but there is no there's no acknowledgement of the Prince of Peace. You open up one of those little chocolates and it's a neat little saying, uh, you know, look up, things are going to be brighter. Well, what is that little note and quip grounded on? It's grounded on nothing. Hope has a symmetry, has a foundation. We have no right to expect a hopeful future without knowing the author and finisher of our faith. We have no forward-looking joy that's worth anything or means anything without the basis and confidence of our confession being on the one who can wash away sins, who does control the future, who knows the end from the beginning, who in the sum of his being is light, is salvation, and is a stronghold. Today, most of the things that we hang on to are absurd, ridiculous, and ungrounded. We're really looking for a formula to alter our mood, to give me a pick-me-up, a little bless-me, pat on the back, a, a little something for the journey. But I would just use today's example of Adam and Joni's testimony. Would a little fortune cookie type encouraging word be enough to carry Joni through a difficulty and labor during that kind of pain? Would opening up a typical Hallmark card that we might purchase for somebody, these are just trivial examples, for Adam, would that be enough to cause him to bow his knee in repentance and do the hard thing? Not just to confess his sin and seek help, but even to share his testimony in order that it might benefit and God might use it to set some of us free today? No. So what does have the power to set us free? And where do we find the grounds and foundation of our hope? We find it in God's holy word. We find it in verses like this, Psalm 27, 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? True hope is based on the truth of God. Sound theology rightly applied. Who am I? A sinner. Who is God? Holy. What does he demand? Perfection. Will he settle for less? Never let it be said. How can I be justified in his presence? There is but one way. The precious, wrath-absorbing blood of Jesus Christ, our substitute sacrifice. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a foundation for hope. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 15, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, that is, if the scope of the gospel is not true, verified in history, established as incontrovertible fact, then we are hopeless. We of all people should be most ashamed that we are without hope. This to say that our hope is grounded on real things, real events, the historical reality of Jesus Christ and his suffering death for the payment of our sins, and the fact that this universe exists as a testimony to the God and every aspect of it lets us in 
a little sneak peek on some aspect of his being. The sun rises and sets because our God is regular. Because our God is established and firm in his foundations. He never changes. He's immutable. He is our light. He is our salvation. He is our stronghold. David relies on an assurance by order of the being of God. In the beginning, it's so important to note 27.1. He says, God is my light. God is my salvation. And God is the stronghold. You'll notice that the beginning of this psalm is not a stream of consciousness venting session for somebody who is really stressed out. Although David certainly knew what stress felt like. He opens his, his psalm deliberately by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the same way the entire book or the entire Bible as a book opens. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And what did God do as his first act of created power? He spoke light into being. Illumination through revelation and light flooded the earth. It had to. It proceeded from the power of God. And here David opens his psalm much in the same way. What is the beginning of hope, you might say? Where does the symmetry of hope find its foundation? Well, in the beginning of our soul's darkest hour, there was light, and that light was Jesus Christ. We find in the book of Revelation, I'm sorry, in the book of John and Revelation in that regard, a further explanation of exactly where David stood and what this poem means but who can forget in the beginning of John when we read how John opens his gospel? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And what a beautiful picture that we heard today of exactly that. Now, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe in him. But he was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. Some of David's cohorts and his mighty men, they considered his office. And maybe some of them considered him to be a lamp for Israel. There came a time in 2 Samuel where they said, no more war for you. You stay home in Jerusalem and be safe. Otherwise, the lamp of Israel will be extinguished. But David, a man after God's own heart, knew that he was no lamp. He was no light. Inasmuch as his office prefigured Christ, God was keeping a light through him burning. But what did he say in Psalm 119? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. David, like any saint, recognized that God is light and he cannot find his way. He is like a blind man groping in the darkness on the verge of a precipice that lands at the bottom of a cliff, which is hell. If God would not guide him away open his eyes and give him the true light that we read of in John 1 verse 9 which enlightens everyone that was coming into the world notice it says verse 10 he was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him he came to his own and his own people did not receive him but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man but of God God is light. More than that, he's our stronghold. He is our salvation. When we think of these words, they're connected throughout Scripture with so many references, time fails us to cite them all. But just for a few, when we think of light as a picture and a symbol, in Scripture we think of revelation. We think of that spiritual revelation and physical revelation alike. 
We think of these times where the light provides security from enemies as evil is compared to darkness, but purity is described as light, help, hope, assurance, illumination, holiness, clarity, truth, purity, order, understanding, power, gladness, joy, honor, a beacon, peace, transcendence, glory, guidance, spiritual hope and salvation. All these pictures flood into our minds from the rest of Scripture and light is referenced and here they begin David's foundation for the symmetry of hope confessing that God is by order of his being the only assurance of hope. Secondly, David is honest about his scenario. He says in verse 2, when evil doers assail me to eat my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. And notice David talks about evil in various forms and in varying degrees. He refers to this cannibalistic intent of evildoers that would sooner devour you for their own will than have any second thought. When evildoers assail me like cannibals who would as soon destroy me as look at me. When adversaries and foes are all about, it is they who stumble and fall. Why? Because they have no light. They walk in darkness. We're reminded of the enemies of Israel. I talked to my boys this week of devotions, and Jack led us through the story, his recall of Gideon. Just 300 men against thousands of Midianites. God gave them specific instructions. With nothing more than a loud noise and a bright light and a blast of trumpets, the enemies of God's people were turned on each other, and they stumbled and fell. Why? Because God is light. And at the snap of his fingers, at a word of his mouth, at the breath of his nostrils, he can cause such confusion in the rank of the enemy's camps, he can let them hear just a little rumble of the chariot wheels of the heavenlies as the prophet prays. And all the enemies of God's people, whoever they are, whether the sins that knock at the door of our heart or the Assyrians that gather at the borders of Israel run and turn on each other in fear. Why? Because God has the power of light. God is the one who gives us our next moment's breath, our next cogent thought. And here, even though the scenario seems to be the worst case possible, men who are so reprobate they would sooner eat our flesh than think otherwise. And even when they're represented by an army encamped against you on all sides, and here you are in a helpless tent in the middle, no place to hide, no place to run. And even though war is declared by these forces against you, if you are assured that the basis of your hope is in God, your light, your salvation, and your stronghold, yet you will be confident. The assurance by order of God's being is provided. David gives us even the worst case scenario. And he says still he will hope under these conditions. And thirdly, he offers sure footing. Notice all the prepositional phrases that we read in these following verses, starting in verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. All the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent 
sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. David is indicating there's a situation. There's an exclusive place. There are conditions for God's favor. And there are official means of grace that he finds on which he finds his sure footing. So important and precious were they to David that he opens this, these phrases by saying, One thing have I asked for. You might ask yourself if you were surrounded as a fugitive with enemy armies all the way around. And the Holy Spirit came to you or some prophet and said, I'll give you one request. What will it be? I wonder what our answer would be. David's answer was this. One thing I have asked for. I have asked of the Lord. And that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord. What can we draw from that statement? That David would be able to stand in favorable, favorable conditions with the holy, righteous, omnipotent, omniscient Lord of glory. That he would be judged in such a way as to remain when that final day came. That God's grace and mercy would wash away his sins. That he would meet the conditions by the blood of the future sacrificed Messiah of God's favor. And David also, for himself, by practical measure, took, availed himself of official means of grace. That is, God sanctions certain things for us to do. Certain people to talk to. Certain things to say. Certain thoughts to think. In order for us to have sure footing in our hopeful journey towards heaven. And these include fellowship with God's people, what we're doing today. These include meditating on his word, deep thoughts, meditations, and crying out in prayer. These include applying our mind, mindset, and prayers to the symmetry of hope we see here. Making sure our requests are founded on God's word and will. That we ask according to God's intentions and not ask amiss, and so on. I'll let you draw more in your own study as far as application from the sure footing that David finds for himself and simply move to point number four, which is supplication. David has said he, what, that he plans to do something in the temple of his God. He plans to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord at the end of verse four and to inquire in his temple. And David proceeds in this poem to go ahead and inquire. And here is his supplication, verse seven. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. For you have said, seek my face, my heart says to you. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God, of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. And lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. And here David is crying out. He is bearing his soul. He is bringing the things that bring anguish to his heart before the throne of glory. But he has not done so without first confessing that the Lord is his life, his salvation, and his stronghold. And demonstrating his faith in his God by saying, no matter the degree... Of the danger around, I am confident that my God is powerful to save. And I will ask and I will bring my petition before you, but I will first be mindful of the conditions of your favor. I come in the name 
of Jesus. We think of in New Testament revelation. What are the conditions of God's favor? That our prayers might be heard. We come in the name of Jesus. Passage to the holiest of holiest places was only available with a very narrow criteria that a holy God demands were met by the high priest of old. That was a picture of us being in the presence or being allowed into the presence of Almighty God and having him smile and not strike us down with a lightning bolt from the sword that proceeds from the mouth of our Savior that rules and reigns over the universe. So how are we assured safe passage? Through our mediator, Jesus Christ, and his blood. And when that veil was rent, a way was made to go boldly before the throne of grace. And we do so walking on the sure footing of Jesus Christ, who has gone before us, the only mediator between God and man. And once we've arrived, we pour out our hearts to the Lord. This is the shape of hope for the believer. We can miss bits and pieces of this at any given time, but thank the Lord for a psalm like 20, number 27 that brings us back to the shape of our prayer and shape of worship that would be pleasing to the Lord. And so we do. We come before his presence and we bring our requests. We inquire in his temple. And we realize that we've been abandoned by forces in this life. We're not resentful or hateful of God who would have had the power to keep David's parents with him, as he says, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. If God judges it a test of faith that he would place upon you, maybe the pressure of losing relationships that are closest to you in order that you might value the relationship that ought to be closer still, you can count it all joy to suffer for his name's sake. Matthew 10 declares that a sword sometimes divides God forbid that it would be so, but if it happened, it would be for a sovereign purpose to show us that our Heavenly Father and our adoptions as son, our adoption as sons and daughters of His parental watch care over us is so far above any relationship on this earth. In fact, the book of Ephesians teaches that all other relationships find their meaning, find their order, and find their purpose under Him. And so an orphan is never abandoned by a heavenly father. And so an estranged wife is never abandoned by an unfaithful husband. And as we hear today, the redemptive power and loving care of our God has the power to put both back together again. Bring a parent to an orphan to reconcile a husband and wife, ultimately when hearts are reconciled to him. And then David closes with two more points that leads me to form this title, The Symmetry of Hope. He goes back to the scenario again. He says, give me not up to the will of my adversaries, in verse 12. For false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. He has said in the verse previous, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. So there again, he cites the scenario. He is under pressure. He is assailed on all sides by these forces. But what does he do in this case? He cites the scenario as just cause. He says, bring judgment upon these enemies for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. And you see how David uses God's law as a standard. We are not to lie, and we are not to kill. And insofar as forces violate God's law, the imprecatory prayers of the Psalms ask that God's glory would be vindicated, and that he would spare no means to do so. Spare no means in defense of your glory. And first and foremost, in the heart of grace, we pray that the enemies of the cross would 
bow their knee before the Lordship of Christ and would in this life confess their sin and come to him. But our prayer ought to ultimately be, in the grand scope of things, if there are enemies of God and his glory that exists and are on all sides, whatever form they take, O oh Lord, in the final analysis, on the final day, spare no means in defense of your glory. This is a bold prayer. We must be so careful to align ourselves with the righteousness of God. That is, the Holy Spirit does that. We hold ourselves accountable to his standard. But when we do so, bold prayers are warranted. If they meet the measure, giving God glory and are on the foundation that David exemplifies here. And finally, he reiterates his assurance. We've gone from assurance to scenario and sure footing and supplication. And scenario again and finally assurance, completing the symmetry of hope. David says in 27, 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And we can match up these phrases, I look upon. David would not be able to see anything if the Lord was not his light. He says, the goodness of the Lord, to which he would never experience if his God was not the God of salvation. In the land of the living. And there would not be no safe place for the living to thrive if God did not provide a stronghold. And so here we see application applied to the heart. Assurance applied. We see that David is trusting that God is his light, is his, is his salvation, and is his stronghold. So God will reveal to him as his light what he should look upon and what he should set his gaze upon, the hope that he ought to have, the symmetry of hope here. And secondly, that the goodness of the Lord would be evident in his own salvation from his enemies and ultimately his soul. And finally, in the land of the living, that the godly would prosper so that through their testimony and through their faithfulness, they might give glory for as many days as God would graciously give to the only power that saves, the Lord, who is our life, our salvation, and stronghold. And finally, when we consider the biblical grounds of hope, more often than not, what do we do now is answered by this phrase, wait for the Lord. This psalm gives us what to think about, what to pray, what to worship about while we're waiting. But nevertheless, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is what to do while we're waiting. The rest of the Bible answers what we're waiting for. The final verse I'll read, you don't necessarily need to turn there, but in Revelation 21, these pictures and imagery of conflict, of peace, of hope, of victory, of light. They all come together in the book of Revelation and speak to the glorious hope, the ultimate fulfillment of what all history is marching dutifully according to the word of an omnipotent God towards. We read of these things in Revelation 21, 23. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Same as David. The Lord is my light. And the light of the new heavens and new earth, the city of God here pictured, is the Lamb, is our Jesus Christ. Verse 24, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever, ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who's, who are written 
in the Lamb's book of life. And this, fellow Christians, saints, members of the household of God, is what we are waiting for. When all the glorious themes of the Psalms and the Bible as a whole finally are manifest in our experience. But in the meantime, do not fear. Be confident. For the Lord, the God of glory, the creator of the universe, is your stronghold, is your life. He is and provides the symmetry of hope for you. He is your salvation. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning. We look to your word. And we find there the glorious declaration of your being that provides us the basis and foundation for our hope. Lord, I pray that you would greatly encourage us so whatever enemies might assail us on every side, whatever the scenario may be, if it feels like the worst case scenario, or maybe we are just caught in the throes of apathy and complacency, that we would repent and find sure footing, sure footing in you. And the conditions of your favor met by our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lamb of God. And by the official means that you provide for us to commune together and find hope and security and sanctification and that we would come before you with our requests, make them known, and trust as we seek your kingdom and your righteousness, that you would add all of them unto us. And finally, Lord, no matter how long you've called us to endure, to be able to count it all joy, to suffer for your name's sake, because the assurance that you give us is stronger than death. Stronger than death. Indeed, it is resurrection life that you've, that you've planted in the heart of every believing soul in this room today. And for that, we thank you and give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. Thank you for your patience. And as I mentioned, hang around in fellowship as long as the Lord leads. There's a box on your left. You can leave labeled tithes and offerings if the Lord calls you to worship that way this morning. I encourage you to check on the website, providencecrosslake.com. Uh, in a week or so, we'll have this video, Lord willing, updated. That is the video of the testimony today, and there's others on there for your, for your encouragement. And you might know somebody, say, whose marriage is threatened right now. It could greatly benefit from a story of God's power to redeem. Um, there's a few other things I'm supposed to announce, but I forget them all right now. There's a, a baptism service that we're planning on the first of next month. If you have not been baptized and you are a believer, you should be convicted to be baptized. So talk to me about that, and uh, we'll make plans accordingly. God bless. Hang out in fellowship as long as the Lord leads, and praise the Lord for this opportunity to continue to fellowship together.
for those, and that's why prayer too. And of course, it's also a violation of the mediatorial rule, the singular mediatorial rule of Christ alone. Right. So no, you and I can pray for each other. Right, and that's, I've heard, I've talked to Catholics, yeah. and they say that when they ask Mary or the other It's like asking another, me asking you to pray for you. Yeah. Unfortunately, while that doesn't sound as bad, the church disagrees with that. Yeah, the official stance of the church, and as you and I know, it's more important to pay attention, and I think that's why you're, you're talking about some of these orthodox lines. It is, in some ways, more important to pay attention to the official stance than anybody or everybody you talk to. Because you can have any number of varying ideas. But by their confession, by their creed, by their stated documents, they're asking themselves to be judged. But I think you will find that the church will be judged hostage by its own documents. There's, of course, a few other ones. Papal infallibility. It is, yeah, but Western Protestant or Western Catholicism tends to be more flexible than the Church warrants. Even the Pope's statement himself really don't carry any weight. And there's other things too. So, in my judgment, the tradition of the Church, symbol signs, icons, and saints, the edifices themselves, uh, holy sites and pilgrimages, all have been elevated to mediatorial status. In my judgment. So any one of those can help you get to God in a way that violates the singular mediatorial rule of Christ. Yes. Well, you would actually have to be involved in the second Yeah. And so in doing these passages like yeah. or uh, the, the treasury, yeah. you're using Protestant terms that you just stated that they're not so distinct right. Catholic theology. And therein lies the problem. If they are not distinct, then our works have some salvific effect. Baptism has some salvific effect. If not, then they essentially are distinct. But there's a reason why in the liturgy they're at least plural, if not emphatically, uh, one and the same in many in many ways. If I understand it, I have right. You are a judge of, of some things. I'm not asking you to judge any Catholic's heart. I'm asking you to judge by the standard of God's word well applied. You know. Yeah, yeah. My church. So, yeah, so I would. An Anglican, depending on where you are in history, has some roots. You know, so, I mean, there's other things like. There's. You know, Episcopal issues that, that you could split hairs on. But fortunately, there were times in history when the confessional fidelity of the church was sound. And so you can find a church, I mean, you know, that affirms that. You know, I mean, the Episcopal church as well. The Episcopal church and the Presbyterian probably the two closest traditions to affirm the Westminster confessional. And I agree with the 
Right, but as you were saying before, you've got to find the tertiary now Orthodox movements because they uh, totally apostate. Yeah. I don't know if that's Hey, God bless you. Oh, it's great to see you. How are you doing? Good to see you. All right, man. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You got to call you my phone number? No. Great. I know. Oh, what's Yeah, which video was it? Yeah, like, like, sweet. Oh, yeah, yeah, please, please. Oh, yeah. I don't know where it is. It's out here. It's out here. It's Yeah, I can get through that book. Uh, and 